Dr. Katrina Fury, a psychiatrist. And I'm Portia Pendleton, a licensed clinical social worker. And And this this is Analyze Scripts, a podcast where two shrinks analyze the depiction of mental health in movies and TV shows. Our hope is that you learn some legit info about mental Mm -hmm. health while feeling like you're chatting with your girlfriends. There is so much misinformation out there and it drives us nuts. And if someday we pay off our student loans or land a sponsorship, like with a lay flat airline or a major beauty brand, even better. So sit back, relax, grab some popcorn and your DSM-5 and enjoy. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Dr. Katrina Fury, a psychiatrist. And I'm Portia Pendleton, a licensed clinical social worker. And, and this, this is Analyze Scripts, a podcast where two shrinks analyze the depiction of mental health in movies and TV shows. Our hope is that you learn some legit info about mental mm-hmm. health while feeling like you're chatting with your girlfriends. There is so much misinformation out there and it drives us nuts. And if someday we pay off our student loans or land a sponsorship, like with a lay flat airline or a major beauty brand, even better. So sit back, relax, grab some popcorn and your DSM-5 and enjoy. Welcome back for another very exciting episode of Analyze Scripts as part of our Halloween month. Uh, Today we are covering the 2007 thriller mystery movie called Awake um, with our wonderful guest, Dr. Antonio Gonzalez. And I cannot think of anything scarier than being awake during a surgery. (laughs) So this is perfect for our Halloween month. Um, But just as a quick bio, Dr. Gonzalez is an associate professor of anesthesiology 
and the director of the Obstetrics Anesthesia Fellowship at Yale New Haven Hospital. He completed his residency program at Rutgers uh, in New Jersey and decided to pursue a fellowship in obstetric anesthesia at Columbia University in New York. And I will actually be joining one of his podcasts in the near future to talk about maternal mental health and anesthesia, which I'm really excited about. Um, But thank you so much, Dr. Gonzalez, for joining us. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really happy to be here with you today. So, uh, Portia, where do we even get started with this movie? Had you seen it before? I had not seen the movie ever. Um, I think that something like this would probably have been like a little scary to watch. Yeah. I think a lot of people who are not in medicine and maybe people who are in medicine, I think it's a common fear to like wake up during surgery. I think a lot of people going in like get really um, calmed down once talking to the anesthesiologist or like, you know, telling them that this is their process or this is how it's going to be. And all of the machines and monitors that they now have, um, you were saying a little bit before we got started today. So I think this is just like a pretty common fear that people have going into surgery. What do Um, you think, Dr. Gonzalez? Yes, I I think that definitely, uh, introverted awareness, uh, it's definitely a fear, uh, of uh, our patients. And, um, unfortunately, this movie actually may have hyped the, that Mm -hmm. fear. Uh, but fortunately, the reality is that introverted awareness is relatively rare. Particularly these days, we have way better medications, uh, way better you know, monitors that help us to prevent intraoperative awareness. The incidence has been documented to be somewhere around 0.1% to 0.2% in the United States. So what is that, like one to two out of a thousand cases, something like that? That that is correct. Yeah. So the the estimated, because there are so many surgeries in the United States, that's about Mm -hmm. 20,000 to 40,000 cases a, a year. Uh, okay. Which is still a lot, right? And, yeah. and the, con- the consequences of introverted awareness can go from, you know, just having fear of future surgeries, even withholding surgeries for some of their relatives, uh, mm-hmm. particularly their kids, because they're they are so scared of what happened to them. They may actually be very fearful of letting their their relatives go through surgery. Yeah, so so that is one of the consequences. Uh, but it's again, it's it's relatively rare uh, these days. Okay, okay, Doctor Gonzalez, is there a way to um, like, is there anything in common that the people who this happens to like with each other, or is it just mm-hmm. kind of like, yeah, is there random? like a way to predict it that it could happen? Uh, so so we don't have particularly great ways of predicting who will have intraoperative awareness. We do know that there is a certain patient population or certain surgeries. So there are surgeries like trauma, cardiac surgery, oh. and obstetric anesthesia. Uh, obstetric cases seem to be, and, and when I mean obstetric cases, you know, uh, cesarean deliveries particularly. <gasps> These are cases that are very well known to have an increased risk of intraoperative awareness. The reason behind it is because, you know, trauma patients and cardiac patients have a very delicate hemodynamics, meaning their blood pressure is it's, it's low, tends to be on the lower side. They have a high risk of coronary vascular disease. So having their blood pressure too high or too low, it's, it's at extreme risk. So 
in order to maintain that balance between the anesthesia that's provided and the hemodynamics, those patients tend to be at a higher risk. And that implies for both trauma patients and cardiac patients. Now, the obstetric patient population is at increased risk because of the risk that the anesthesiologists may perceive from the drugs transferring to the baby. So all the medications we give to mom will go to baby. And that increase in medications has been thought to be pretty, you know, dangerous to the baby. So anesthesiologists at some point, you know, were, were very scared of giving extra medications to mom. Nowadays, again, I think that because of our monitoring and the drugs that we have available and the awareness that intraoperative awareness in this particular patient population, it's it's higher, we yeah. have improved the techniques that we have for providing general anesthesia. Now, oh, cool. yeah, that, that being said, you know, we do a lot of our anesthesia on the regional and having pain during a surgery, even with, a, you know, epidural or a spinal can be equally as scary, if not even more scary than having intraoperative awareness while asleep. I was wondering that. So before um, we get into this a little further, I just want to give a quick recap of the plot of this movie. So um, in the movie Awake, we see Hayden Christensen playing the main character, Clay Beresford Jr., who is like a fancy pants financial person on Wall Street, bazillionaire, (laughs) you know, super uber rich. He does something with like stocks probably that I don't understand. And he, he, you see this like interesting relationship with his mom early on, who's played, uh, her name's Lilith, and she's played by Lena Olin. Um, And then we see Jessica Alba. This is one of her big roles playing Sam Lockwood, who's his fiance. They get married very quickly because he is waiting for a cardiac transplant due to history of cardiomyopathy, which is something that happens. That seemed pretty accurate. And then we see Terrence Howard playing his friend and surgeon, Dr. Jack Harper. And spoiler alert, turns out like all of the, you know, medical professionals on the team, including his fiance, were like in on this plot to murder him during the transplant in order to inherit all his money and pay off some malpractice debt. Um, Luckily, the, I think it was the anesthesiologist, the original one backed out. So this other guy was there and somehow he figured out the plot and he like alerted authorities and, you know, eventually I think Dr. Harper injected the heart with adriamycin, I believe. The clay did, I guess, technically die on the table when they delivered that news to his family the mother committed suicide. I can't remember what she overdosed on. I'm assuming maybe Dijoxin, which was in his bag. And then they wheeled the mom in and gave him her heart. And so he survived and all the people got arrested. The end. <laughs> That's basically the plot really quick. So getting back to what you were saying, Dr. Gonzalez, about the intraoperative awareness. So when you were saying that with these uh, certain cases, trauma, cardiac, and OB. With regional anesthesia, like I'm thinking like a, um, an epidural, uh, like for a C-section or something like that. Like if they give the epidural and then it fails, either in a C-section or a, a regular delivery, a vaginal delivery, would that be considered intraoperative awareness? Well, if, if the patient is experiencing pain, yes, that can be as dramatic as experiencing intraoperative awareness because the patient's mentally is completely there, uh, mm-hmm. but she's actually feeling 
the patient is completely feeling the experience of the pain. And, and the definition of pain, actually, it's not only physical, but there is an emotional component to pain, right? So what you describe as pain, you can only be the person that knows what pain is for you. Right. So what, what we've learned through the years is that we should, we are not the best judge of what pain is. The patient is the best judge of what pain is because pain is what the patient tells you pain is. Hmm. I'm so glad you said that. I think that's really important. And to keep in mind the emotional side of it. I like that also just as a, I don't know, a similarity, right? Like mental health, like Mm -hmm. pain, mental pain, emotional pain is like what the patient is describing versus like my definition in the DSM. But I really like that. Yeah. Or just like like validating their experience. Well, this is what they experienced. Mm -hmm. Maybe someone else's was different. Right. Um, But that's, I really like that. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, it's it's a it's a great opportunity because as you mentioned, sometimes if as physicians we try to give an explanation to to pain, right? We may actually minimize the patients. And at, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, what ends up pa- happening is that the patients feels that their feelings are they're being gaslighted. So you the patient is telling you, This is what I feel, and you say, Well, it's not that big of a deal. But mm. but but it is to the patient it is. So pain is again what the patient tells you pain is. No, I think that's great. Um and I, you know, in my line of work in, in private practice, I do end up seeing well, I see primarily women around pregnancy and postpartum. So I've heard many cases where the epidural failed or it only took on half the side or you know, someone had a history of back surgery. So they met with the anesthesiologist ahead of time to talk about pain management options. And it is a super important. Um, aspect of, you know, prenatal care, especially delivery. And I'm sure that extends to other surgeries as well. Um, So Dr. Gonzalez, what are your thoughts about the way anesthesia was depicted in this movie? What would they get right? Would they get wrong? (laughs) Um, Well, there are so many things that they, uh, well, the the one thing that they got right was to, to, to select the patient that was having a cardiac surgery. As we okay. mentioned, yeah, as we mentioned, patients with cardiac surgery have an increased uh, risk of having introvertive awareness. So they got that one part right. <laughs> the, then the other thing is that it seems like they have a substitute anesthesiologist that's coming from another institution. It, it doesn't. It doesn't quite happen that way. You need to have privileges at, a, at that right. place. It's it's you a lot more complicated, yeah. Unless he's a traveler, sometimes we have mm-hmm. anesthesiologists that are, you know, uh, uh, what is the term for no, locums? No, locums, that's correct. Yes. So locums, you know, may might have been a locums that they call in to substitute, but mm-hmm. it's actually quite hard to find locums for very specific cardiac mm-hmm. surgery. So I think that uh, the other in, the the other thing that I think was very very wrongfully depicted was how easy he made look the induction. The induction was basically he took this three cc syringe or four cc syringe. He gave it to the patient. He said, count, count back to 10. Cardiac inductions are very, very, con- very complicated. It, it requires a balance of many, many medications. Again, because there is this hemodynamic balance that you want to maintain uh, you don't want the patient's blood pressure to go too high. Do you want the patient's blood pressure to go too low? So that also, it seems like it was completely off. 
And uh, there is a point where the surgeons are discussing like, well, you know, we won't need you for a little bit. So go get a drink. We never leave the operating room. Right, uh, <laughs> right, right. I know. <laughs> th there, there is always somebody from anesthesia in, in the room that be like the anesthesiologist or anesthetist. But we just don't leave the patient in the in the OR just because the, ter the sur surgeon tells us that they're not, not going to need us for for a bit. Uh, so that's that that was totally wrong. Right. In my experience in medical school, you know, rotating through, uh, that's exactly right. Even these long cases mm -hmm. like cardiothoracic surgery, the anesthesiologist, maybe a resident, maybe the nurse anesthetist, these words are hard to say. Someone's always there watching the monitor. They might be doing something else at the same time. I remember one time there was a resident practicing his golf swing. And I was like, this seems pretty unprofessional. But they're always watching the monitors. And I would imagine yes. things like this, especially watching, you know, the blood pressure, the heart rate, things like that. And they're always checking. They kept checking, at least in the cases I would be in. They would do things to check the patient was still under enough, not too far under, not coming out of it either. Yes. And as you mentioned, so sometimes they, the, the anesthesiologists, a lot of what we do, we may not be actually looking at the monitors because, but because we're actually trained for so, you know, it's a three-year program, by the sound of the, the machines, you actually know what is wrong. Like the, the, this, this, the pulse oximeter has a very typical sound when the, when the saturation drops. Uh, the alarms on the monitors are set off to go at X, you know, levels, mm. right? So you can mm -hmm. set up your alarms. So even if if we're like, let's say, you know, fixing our medication drips or we're working on something that it's not necessarily looking at the monitor, just hearing the monitor, yeah. we are aware of what actually the vital signs are. And then, uh, and of course, the alarms are ever present. Uh, so mm -hmm. we're always very aware of these alarms and everything that, that surrounds. We use pretty much all our senses when caring for patients. That makes a lot of sense. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. I think there was an episode on Grey's Anatomy, you know, years ago about like, and, um, you know, the anesthesiologist at the hospital was like, has a substance use disorder. Mm -hmm. And they were, you know, he was like falling asleep next to the patient. And of course, you know, it's a drama. So like the young resident had to do something and didn't want to get in trouble by the attending or something. But mm -hmm. I, I feel like I've seen not a lot of medical dramas. I mean, that's not like my jam, but the couple that I have, like there seems to always be the anesthesiologist is like sometimes a villain. I don't know. Is that like, a stereotype? Yeah, is that a stereotype or like I, maybe just in TV? Or I mean, the psychiatrist is often the villain too, so we can empathize. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just seems like it's a lot of risk um, well, with that job. I think that psychiatrists, dentists, and anesthesiology seems to be the highest, the, the physicians with the highest incidence of uh, substance use disorder. I believe that's right. Yeah, and, and suicide as well, I think. Yeah, maybe media has picked up on that, maybe. Interesting. I think in my training, I was taught that in those specialties, you have the easiest access to controlled substances in terms of the risk of substance use disorders. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's one reason the rates are higher. Okay. And then suicide. I didn't know anesthesiologists also had a high rate of suicide. Yeah, I I haven't reviewed the, 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 sure, the statistics sure. on this, but... but I think that it used to be that way. I, I think actually dentists might be number one 
for some strange reason. And uh, and anesthesiologists are, you know, high up in there. For- yep. One big issue I had with this movie was the plot. Um, because <laughs> I feel like this is like, this is like a, they went to great lengths to pay off the, a prior malpractice lawsuit. And I feel like they'd all have malpractice insurance, right? Um, even if, you know, I know there's certain specialties, like I think OB, for example, um, has a really high rate of malpractice insurance. Wouldn't they have malpractice to cover any claims? Yes, they they, they right? would have. Yes, yes. <laughs> Like so that I think uh and Porsche, I think you were reading some criticisms of the movie. I think like the general public also caught on to that, like, wow, this is like a really intricate plot to go through to pay off prior right. lawsuits. I mean it's just like I don't know, I mean wild like murdering someone. <laughs> like you have to be so, so backed into the corner, hopeless, like no other options. And it's like I mean, A, yeah, like you're right about the malpractice. You should have insurance, you know, eat through the hospital. Right. You know, you're not even in private. Right. Just paying for your own and that maybe you like cut corners with. Um, that it just seems odd that they were, you know, taking, going to these lengths of, of murdering, you know, a patient that that Dr. Jack Harper was like friends with. And yeah. it's like, at what point did the friendship turn into this? Was it? fake the whole time like i think that's where you know i I watch the movie closely i'm you know taking notes because we're professionals we're professionals at watching tv here yeah and i was just lost like with (laughs) with a lot of the plot line so i'm glad to hear it wasn't you know i guess just me but pretty gaping holes in in some of it yeah and what did you think about that relationship of the friendship between Dr. Harper and Clay? You know, because at least in psychiatry, we are big and not just psychiatry, but mental health in general. We are big boundary people. You know, we really talk about boundaries and how to maintain them, especially in professional settings. I think in some other fields of medicine, I'm thinking more like primary care, pediatrics, you know. In the old school days when you'd have the family doctor who took care of everyone in the town, I think the boundaries would have been a little different. Um, But I always thought, especially when it came to things like surgery, it was really important not to operate or do anesthesia on people you're close to. Um, Is that still the case? Well, I think it's, uh, I think it's probably the right thing to do because your feelings for your significant other or friend may actually interfere with your judgment. But but again, I think it's more of a judgment call than a set rule. I do think that there are certain surgeries and certain procedures that we probably shouldn't be doing for our family members or for close friends uh, because again our judgment may be cloud by our feelings for that person you may not necessarily take the best decision when, when you're put in that in that place yeah i think like you know suturing up a superficial wound like you know your child cuts their knee oh i can suture that up real quick feels very different to me than doing cardiac anesthesia or surgery on your buddy that you go fishing with yeah right yeah I would agree. I I could see, you know, I was thinking just like, what would I be comfortable with a friend doing? But like, you know, maybe, I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking of specialties like ortho, I could see a friend doing like, Like, I don't, but like 
not OB, you know, it's like all private. And then definitely not psychiatry, but like, I don't know. Cardiac surgery? I don't think cardiac. No, it's like your heart. Opening my chest. I don't want you. Like, I think it's important you feel like you trust Mm -hmm. the surgeon and the anesthesiology team, but to have it be like your buddy, that's risky. And what an ultimate betrayal. I mean, like, you know, he, he trusted this person. He chose to have this procedure done by, I guess, at least, you know, rating wise, like a doctor with a lower success rate than right. The mom brought in this specialist who like was operating on presidents and, you know, had all this prestige, you know, play picked Dr. Harper. Um, and then right to have this nefarious plot, like going on was just, I was, I was really shocked. I was also really shocked that Sam was in on it. Yeah. His, you know, fiance. Cause it, I, at first I think the movie kind of sets you up to not like the mom, right? Like Lilith seems, you know, like she doesn't have his best interests at heart. She's she, controlling. Yeah. Maybe they're in mesh. Right. Like they're, you know, she's kind of hovering and not letting him live mm-hmm. or be independent. Right. But then Sam, you know, I was like, wow. Really weasels her way yeah. in. So yeah. I don't know. But interesting. And but and she was a nurse, I think. So she like had some info about his medications, which the mom Lilith was first like really surprised and pleased with. Like, wow, like you really have been taking care of him. I see all the medications in your bag. But then that's also ultimately how she found out um that Sam was in on it, right? She saw like a she I think Sam left her purse behind and the medications fell out. And when she went to like go put everything right. back in the purse, she saw some mail. Oh, where yes, the names the mail, didn't match mail. up. Yeah. Um, and then somehow she put it together. But like that wasn't clear. But again, also <laughs> like, okay, so the names don't match up. That wouldn't automatically make me think like, oh, no, you're in on right. it to murder my son while he's in this heart transplant. Um, the plot was a little far-fetched. But I did think it was entertaining. And I did think, you know, with Clay on the table, you know, often the anesthesiologist is like the first person you meet when you're coming in for surgery that day. And the first person you see when you wake up. So I think that's like very important as well to your whole experience of surgery. And, you know, can you tell us a little bit, Dr. Gonzalez, about like in your role, what that entails and how you sort of take care of the patient in broad strokes. And if this movie, um, we've already talked about how the induction was like totally off, but you know what the movie sort of got right and wrong. Yeah. So I think that the role of the anesthesiologist is, is very important. And, and I think that as anesthesiologists, we, we realize that, as you mentioned, unfortunately, the way our system is, we usually meet our patients just the day of surgery. Right. So what that entails is that we actually need to create rapport with our patients very quickly. We know that the patients are coming in for a very stressful moment in their life. Sometimes it's very big surgery. Sometimes it's very minor surgeries, right? But independently of what type of surgery the patients are coming for, we need to create that rapport and we need to bring the confidence to the patient. And as anesthesiologists, I think that we try to to do that. Like we, the moment we're you know uh, talking to the patient, the first time we talk to the patients, it's all about creating rapport and you know creating a team experience in which. You know, you let me know what are your goals and, you know, we can try to meet those goals and expectations. What are your fears? Some Mm -hmm. patients tell you that their major fear is pain. Some patients tell you their major fear is throwing up. 
because all the nausea, mm-hmm. they've experienced so much nausea after. So then you can reassure the patient, okay, so this is our plan. This is going to be our plan to address the pain. This is going to be our plan to address the, the nausea. And again, we do this for all types of surgery. And I think that that's very important as an anesthesiologist to try to create that rapport and always be, um, talk when talking to the patient, basically mm-hmm. addressing what are what are your major fears and how you know this is our plan to address those mm-hmm. i mean that's such an important question you know and i mean mm-hmm. i think like such an important part of the team um you know i think other people are just kind of you know part of the team which makes sense like okay this is the surgery you know they ask you a million questions like why are you here what's your name what's your birthday like over and over again so they're you know doing the right thing selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you chiching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. But then for someone to ask, right? Like, what are you scared of? Right, what are you scared of today? Like, how can we help you? Do you have any questions? Like, it's really, really helpful. And I think just like lets you, the patient, feel like they're a part of the team, like they're being validated, mm-hmm. listened to, important, which of course they are. But I think in the, you know, system when you have maybe two to five maybe surgeries that day, it's just like it becomes, you know, for everybody that's working there, just procedure. So I think those yeah. questions are just stand out as really helpful and, and like yeah. nice, good patient care. And the anesthesiologist is the person who you like really meet at the beginning who asks you all these questions, checks on your allergies looks in your mouth to see like, okay, how big are those tonsils? How are we going to sort of intubate you most comfortably? Um, Asks you what you're worried about. And then they walk with you in most of the time. Um, And they're with you, getting you on the table, getting you positioned, making sure you're comfortable saying, okay, it's going to be cold in here. Let's put a blanket on. You know, they Mm -hmm. do a lot of that caretaking right away. I think when people are really scared, even if it's a minor surgery, like you're I don't know who's not scared when they're going into a surgery. And then of course the surgeon comes in and they're really focused on the surgery. And of course they want to make the experience good too. But you're usually like with the anesthesiologist, mm-hmm. I think the longest as you're consciously awake. Yep. And then coming out of the surgery, that's who's also waking you up and making sure you're okay. That's who's checking on you in post-op and, you know, things like that. So it is interesting that such an important member of the team and you're right, you really meet them that day. And then you don't see them again, right? Like at the follow-up for the surgery and stuff, you never get to see them. Is that like a part of the job? Do you mind that? Or do you wish that you could check on these people again? 
Well, it's actually very interesting that you ask, and um, because one of the things that actually inspired me to become an obstetric anesthesiologist, particularly, was I sometimes felt that I was in these very long surgeries, and I went when I went to see the patients post op, they they would not remember me, mm-hmm. and th- there there was there was there wasn't really a a problem with the patient not remember me. Is it wasn't really an ego thing. Mm-hmm. It was more like you know, I, I don't feel like he thinks I'm part of this team taking care of him. Like, I, I I didn't feel like, you know, I was part of the team again. But but on the other hand, I just happened to see a patient in a hallway and he's like, oh, you, you did my epidural for labor. And I'm like, oh, I did. And, and that was like, oh, you know, these patients do remember me, do appreciate yeah. what we're doing. <laughs> oh, yeah. And Although again, it's not, it's not, it's not an ego thing, but it's, it's, it's feeling, it's just that feeling of being part of something more, more like, mm-hmm. you know, that you help somebody and they actually remember that, that you were part of that uh, alleviating the pain and, and it just feels good. It makes you feel like you're really part of a team that addresses the patient's pain and, and all mm-hmm. these. And that's, that's what you know, what really brought me into obstetric anesthesia. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, going back to, you know, what we were talking about, the the patients, you know, the, the pre-op part, again, because of my obstetric anesthesia background, most of the literature that I've reviewed is, is in the, it's in that field. And there is a very interesting article that has changed the way I practice that basically addressed the, what we were just discussing, which is was basically you ask the patients, would you rather have better analgesia or more side effects by, you know, depending on the dose? And the, the interesting thing, I'm not, I know the study, it's a very interesting study, but the outcome of the study was that patients actually knew exactly what they wanted. The patients mm-hmm. that were overly concerned about pain ended up consuming more pain medication. And the patients that were overly concerned with the side effects did not consume as many as many medications. So the patients always know, and that's why always mm-hmm. asking your patients what what are what are your weigh the risk and benefits, or what are your main outcomes? What do you want mm-hmm. to experience here? More pain, you know, slightly less pain, slightly more side effects of the medications, or you're okay with pain, knowing that your side effects are going to be less. Mm-hmm. The patients know. That's actually really yeah. interesting and really important to keep sort of their autonomy and their preferences. And So, Dr. Gonzalez, I know you're not like a transplant surgeon, but I thought it was pretty unlikely that the mother would just be like wheeled in, especially after having overdosed on something and like her heart would be given right to her son. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, what do you think about that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think you're you're absolutely right. And I, I you know, at some point, I was uh, hoping to bring that up. First of all, as you mentioned, there's a battery of tests that the that the donor needs to go through before they actually have they can you know be a, a donor. That's it's number one. It's not just one. blood type, right? It's not just right. like oh, it's a blood type match. There's like so many more things they have right. to check. There's so many many more tests. And it seems from the movie that the mom have actually taken the 
purse from Sam, right? Mm -hmm. So presumably she took medications that could have actually make her heart stop. Right. Which, which means that the period of ischemia of the heart may not have made her a good donor for her heart. She might have been able to, to donate her cornea and other things that actually don't need, don't have a very specific ischemia time, but there are organs that have a very limited ischemia time, meaning that the, the time that the organ is without perfusion or without that oxygenation, blood flow. without blood flow. And, and that is very important. And I, and, it, and it's, you know, uh, the heart is one of the organs that needs perfusion for, you know, very crucial timing. It's a very small right. window of ischemia for the heart. Yeah. So, so it seems it's very, very unlikely. unlikely that she'd take, again, cardiac medication that likely stopped her heart. It does seem like she called her surgeon of choice ahead of time and was like, get here now. We only have so much time. But still, it's just completely unlikely that that would have happened. It, it was kind of a beautiful, I guess, part of the story that they could both, you know, in this like other realm, connect with each other and she could talk to him and they got to say this goodbye. That was pretty beautiful. Um, but in terms of accuracy, like there's no way that would have happened. And so getting back to, you know, the title of the movie, Awake, and the whole premise that he's awake in surgery and aware of everything that's going on. I think a fascinating question that comes to my mind is like, how do we define awake? You know, is it consciousness? Is it memory? Is it feeling? And then like, how do you assess it during and after something like a major surgery? Yeah, that that's a very interesting question. And I, I was thinking myself the same thing throughout the movie. And, and at the end, I'm still not even clear that <laughs> either he was awake. We probably will never know the answer according to the movie. But intraoperative awareness, it's basically the incidence of a failure to suppress arousal experience and episodic memory. Mm. So for you to have recall you need to, uh, you know, sorry, in order for you to have introverted awareness, there, 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 there has to be recall. Mm. There, there are some incidents of patients actually hearing things, but they may not have necessarily distress about it because hearing and depth of sedation, it's, it's, it's the, the depth of sedation goes anywhere from hearing to actually not even being able to have recall. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. you are going to see the worst cases of introverted awareness when there is recall and the patient can actually tell you how stressed they were about the experience. So they've come up with some classifications called the Michigan Awareness Classification. And it goes from zero, class zero, which is basically no awareness, to Class one, which is auditory perceptions. Class two, which is tactile perception. So they feel the, the surgical manipulation. They feel the endotracheal tube. And then there is uh, class three, which is they, they actually feel pain. Class four, they actually have paralysis. And this is what seems Ooh. to actually be happening here. He's experiencing paralysis because he says, just move something, right? He's trying to move something. He can't move anything. So he 
probably is there at a class four. Later on, we know that he's definitely at class five, where he's probably experiencing pain and paralysis. And then you can actually uh, assign a D if the patient tells you that it was very stressful. They have the fear, they had fear, they had uh, anxiety, a -hmm. sense of suffocation or doom. So basically all these classifications, you can actually add a D to them. And the higher they are, and especially if they have a D next to them, the more likely these patients will have sequela. And, and as, as, as in your profession, you can probably talk about what happens, right, to these patients uh, that know, have yeah. interpretive awareness, right? And, and you were talking about moms that have pain during surgery. So, so that could lead to post-traumatic stress disorder, but I'm not the expert there. I would imagine it would, right? Like I would imagine, you know, when we think about post-traumatic stress disorder, I like to think of that as a disorder of stuckness. And I always tell my patients, like, it's normal after you've lived through something traumatic to have the symptoms of PTSD, the hyperarousal, the hypervigilance, intrusive thoughts, altered avoidance, avoidance, altered mood, altered uh, uh, line of thinking and things like that. Initially, because who wouldn't? Mm -hmm. We sort of call that an acute stress response. But then once it persists, usually after like a month or continues beyond that, then we start to think of it as something called PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, And there's some really great treatments out there for that, including things like cognitive processing therapy or CPT, EMDR, um, different types of psychotherapies and medications. And patients can really get a lot better. I love treating PTSD. Uh, for that reason. But I would imagine, you know, the first criterion to meet uh, diagnostic criteria for PTSD is to have a life-threatening situation happen to you or to be vicariously exposed to it, which I think is really important. It's a new uh, addition to the DSM criteria. I think this will qualify. Yeah. I'm I'm just (laughs) even imagining like a patient coming in and describing this, you know, I mean, like i would expect a person to, to develop PTSD from it. And then know? it's like, like is even- that a disorder or is that like a normal human right, response right. to being consciously awake but paralyzed right, right. during like cardiac surgery, right? Like that's where you're like, well, like trouble sleeping, following, you know, I, mm-hmm. I would imagine maybe some person Nightmares. might be as- afraid to fall asleep. Um, 100%. Or, you know, obviously, like you were saying before, Dr. Gonzalez, like afraid of returning for future medical care or, um, you know, surgeries or like, you know, telling loved ones to not do it or their experience. So like, it just it feels really serious. And obviously, many traumas can be but um, also like unique. I haven't worked with someone with this, uh, that this has occurred to obviously, because it is rare. But I'm just imagining like, or clay, you know, right when he wakes up, like, and he does, if he does recall at one of those levels that you described, you know, then what? Like, and also write the murder plot. I mean, that was like taking the cake, let alone feeling pain. I know, Um, like such intense pain. Right. And being so paralyzed and helpless. Like, I I almost can't imagine anything worse. He's standing up, you know, we talked a little bit about like the dissociation, that being an interesting way to show it. So like sometimes when somebody's experiencing a trauma, they might um, dissociate and like kind of see themselves from up above. above. And they they did like show that when he sort of like zoomed out, then it took a turn where he's then like solving the plot, Mm -hmm. like walking around figuring it out. Like that, I don't think that, yeah, that's not quite dissociation. But up until that point, Mm -hmm. it was a great depiction of dissociation. Yeah. 
It just, it was wild. It was wild. <laughs> uh, what a wild movie. Dr. Gonzalez, as we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to add or anything we haven't touched on that you think is important? What what it's really important here is for the patients to really voice out their experience, right? One one of the things that we see as physicians, we're not necessarily, particularly not psychiatrists or psychologists, we are not necessarily very well versed in how to deal with the consequences of what happens intraoperatively. And it's important for the patients to say, hey, this is this is what I this is what I felt. But it, it equally as important is for physicians to actually avoid minimizing what the patient mm-hmm. felt yeah. and actually acknowledge that something happened and say, hey, I'm really sorry that you went through this. Let's try to figure out what resources we have to help you to to get better, to get through this. It's actually something that I've always wondered is when is the best time to reach out for the patients when, for example, in our case, we we, we do uh, C-sections, right? And the patients are telling us that they're feeling pain. So they're actually quickly uh, voice out their experience so we can quickly do something about it. And even then, it's hard to figure out if you should approach the patient, shouldn't approach the patient, because mm-hmm. not every patient will will experience won't consider a, a short time of discomfort or pain as a traumatic. So, so, it, so it's a it's a thin line in which you know basically we rely on the patient telling us this is what I felt, this is this is how I feel now, mm. so that we can actually look for help again because uh, as as anesthesiologists or surgeons may not be the best person to deal with it, but we can look for the resources. And I do think actually, at least in my clinical experience, given what I do, it is, it has been, I can tell you without a a shadow of a doubt, it has been so validating and healing for my patients who have experienced trauma within previous childbirth deliveries or IVF procedures or other things like that, who felt minimized by the team at the time when they go in for the next thing. And their anesthesiologist is the one who asks them, just the questions you're mentioning. Now I'm wondering if it was you or or if you've just trained like some really good team members. Um, But when they ask them about these things and they share their prior traumatic experience, which is very hard for them, right? Like to even share period, but then especially if they've felt minimized or invalidated in the past, when they share it this time and it's met with compassion and validation, it just, it goes so far in their healing. And so I think you're, you're spot on. And I hope you know, this can serve and, and your continuing education can serve to just like keep reinforcing that to the anesthesiology team that that is like really important and such a crucial time to give that validation to patients who might really need it. And I think that would go for like any patient, but especially any patient with a history of PTSD, you know, prior to that. And that's a hard thing to ask about. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, I could definitely see it in like pregnancy traumas, mm-hmm. um, I think it's a pretty common experience with just like whether whether or not right it, it's it's their perspective of of something happening. Mm-hmm. Everything moves fast sometimes, as you know, both of you know, I'm sure. Like mm-hmm. if it's a supposed to be a regular delivery, and all of a sudden it's not, like that can be scary. And something sometimes like you have to prioritize mm-hmm. saving a patient so things aren't explained. 
slowly at the right. Like it's the after of like, okay, I know that was really scary. Um, kind of debriefing. Yeah. The, the debrief, I would imagine being really yeah. helpful. And we always, you know, I think in mental health, we always assume our patients have a trauma history rather than assume they don't. And I don't think that's because there's like a, I mean, maybe there is a higher incidence given the patients we're seeing, but I think then if you can just sort of approach it in more of like a trauma informed framework and just assume like, okay, let's just assume this person has had some experience in their life where they felt helpless or stuck or not heard. How do we approach them here so that they don't feel that? Like if you just, you don't even have to ask, like, do you have a trauma history? You could just assume. Yeah. And then I think that just goes a really far away. So I'm so glad Dr. Gonzalez to hear that you're just doing that. You know, that makes this yeah. psychiatrist very happy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think that a lot of it has to do with um, the fact that some time ago, we actually read this very nice article that came out that was titled Failure of Communication. And it was actually written by a patient who experienced intraoperative pain. I actually had the pleasure to have a, po- to have a podcast with Susanna Stanford, who is a patient mm-hmm. who experienced intraoperative pain. And she shared with us through that paper that was a couple of years ago, her experience. And from the time I read that paper, I, I started realizing how important that communication part is and not minimizing their pain and actually trying to address the the situation in the moment and offering alternatives, right? Like mm-hmm. the, the most important thing, as you mentioned, is the patient needs to feel that they, first of all, they're being heard and that their concerns will be addressed. You know, the worst we can do is tell them that it's not that big of a deal. Mm. It, it, you know, like baby's okay. That's that's usually what we hear. Oh, the baby's okay, so it's it's gonna be fine. Yeah. So what it's it, the means doesn't justify the the end. Well, that's wonderful. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Gonzalez, for joining us today. I think we will try to link to that paper in our show notes. Yeah. Um, if anyone is interested in reading that further, and maybe also your podcast, if you want to tell us, give us a little shout out. Yeah, where you can find um where they can find your podcast. Yes, the uh, podcast is uh, Yale Anesthesiology, uh, and I will share the link as well. Thank you. Um, And we want to thank all of our listeners for joining us today. You can find us at Analyze Scripts Podcast on Instagram and TikTok. We recently updated our Instagram handle, so Mm -hmm. now it's Analyze Scripts Podcast across the board. And we hope that you will join us next week as we cover the Nightmare Before Christmas on our Halloween month. Yes. So we'll see you next Monday. Thank you so much for joining us. Bye. All right. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Thank you. This podcast and its contents are a copyright of analyzed scripts, all rights reserved. Any redistribution or reproduction of part or all of the contents in any form is prohibited. Unless you want to share it with your friends and rate, review, and subscribe. That's fine. All stories and characters discussed are fictional in nature. No identification with actual persons, living or deceased, places, buildings, or products is intended or should be inferred. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. The podcast and its contents do not constitute professional, mental health, or medical advice. Listeners might consider consulting a mental health provider if they need assistance with any mental health problems or concerns. As always, please call 911 or go directly to your nearest emergency room for any psychiatric emergencies. Thanks for listening and see you next time.
Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This podcast and its contents are a copyright of analyzed scripts, all rights reserved. Any redistribution or reproduction of part or all of the contents in any form is prohibited. Unless you want to share it with your friends and rate, review, and subscribe. That's fine. All stories and characters discussed are fictional in nature. No identification with actual persons, living or deceased, places, buildings, or products is intended or should be inferred. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. The podcast and its contents do not constitute professional, mental health, or medical advice. Listeners might consider consulting a mental health provider if they need assistance with any mental health problems or concerns. As always, please call 911 or go directly to your nearest emergency room for any psychiatric emergencies. Thanks for listening and see you next time.